You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have given us the gift of your word and that your word reveals Jesus Christ to us. We pray this morning that as we encounter Jesus Christ in your scriptures, that we would truly meet him here, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our souls, that we would find him speaking to us today, and that we would respond to his voice with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Um, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Corey. And I'm the lead pastor here at Third. I've been away for about five weeks um, on a wonderful little mini sabbatical that um, the session generously gave to me. And it's been a really awesome time with my family and a time of restoration and renewal, and I'm super grateful for it. But I'm really happy to be back with you all, my spiritual family, again. And I'm really happy to be getting to join in in this wonderful sermon series that you guys have been experiencing this summer. Um, And really grateful for... Elizabeth, who put this whole sermon series together, and for all, her and all the other folks who've preached so well um, throughout the series. The, the, the idea behind the series, Taste and See, is that we're tracing a surprisingly common thread in the scriptures about food, food and feasting. Who knew that this was such a dominant theme throughout scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation? And so what we're doing is we're going, basically doing a survey of the entire Bible and all these wonderful stories about food and feasting, and what it says about God's provision and nourishment for us. And what's wonderful about it is if you've ever had a good meal before, you know, you don't just know that it's a good meal in your mind, but you experience it with your body. And this is what God wants for us. Taste and see that I am good. God wants you to not just know that he's good and that he loves you, but he wants you to experience it in your whole body because that's what makes you whole. And so we're getting to encounter God and his grace in some of these wonderful stories Um, This morning, we're looking at what is probably one of my most favorite stories about a meal in Scripture, Um, and it takes place in John chapter 21, um, right after Jesus has risen from the dead. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 21 or open an app on your phone, um, or you can just listen, our dear friend um, and mission partner, Alan DeSerf, is going to come up and read it to us. So let's hear God's word from John chapter 21. I got so excited about the scripture reading this morning that I went way over uh, reading more verses than what I should have read. Um, but I promise, Corey, I'll stick to the text in the, in the second reading. Dear friends, hear the word of the Lord out of John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And it happened this way. Simon Thomas Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Jebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And so he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to to haul the net 
in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were in not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there and fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed, on, uh, climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, about 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he has raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than, the, than these? And yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. For decades, a ferocious debate has waged on in the culture wars that has divided many friends and many families, and the debate has centered around this question, is breakfast really the most important meal of the day? And there are those who insist, yes, breakfast is just that important. It jumpstarts metabolism. It gives you the sort of nutrients that you need to get your body going for the day. There are others who say, no, it's actually better to skip breakfast because fasting for longer periods of time is actually better for the body. And so the debate goes on. So we're going to try to settle the debate here. Raise your hand if you think that, yes, breakfast is indeed super important and I would never miss it. Raise your hand. Okay, raise your hand if you think breakfast is not that important and you often skip it. See, it's, it's completely divided, friends. We are locked in conflict about this as a church. Now, now, here's another question. Raise your hand if you have ever had a life-transforming experience while eating breakfast that has changed the direction of your life forever. Raise your hand. There were actually, oh, there's actually two of you, which is kind of amazing, right? We're going to have a testimony time after the service, so you can share. Um, so, y'all, this is crazy. This is a story about breakfast. And not just any breakfast, this is a story about a life-transforming breakfast that Peter has with the resurrected Jesus. And because of this single meal, because of this meal with the resurrected Jesus, little fish, little bread, Peter's 
heart is liberated from his shame. His life is set free from guilt. And his future is set in a new direction forever. All because of this meal. So I'm just so grateful. This is the, John is the only gospel writer who recorded this breakfast meal, this story. And I'm so grateful for it because it's not just stories, Peter. It's, our, it's not just Peter's story. It's our story. This is a story about what does God do with spiritual failures? What does God do for people who often feel really far from God? What does God do with people who are burdened with guilt and shame? What does God do with people who long for restoration? In other words, speaking personally, what does God do for people like me? And I think that there's probably some of you who can say that too. So let's dive into the story. You can see verse 1. If you look at the text with me, it just says afterwards. What that means is that this story immediately takes place after John chapter 20, which is where the resurrected Jesus appeared in the upper room to his disciples. We don't know how long chapter 21 happens after that, whether it was a few days or a few weeks. We don't really know. All we know is that on this particular morning or this particular evening, actually, Peter says in verse 3 to six of his friends, not all disciples, but six of them, I'm going to go fishing. And so they say, okay, we'll go with you. And so they go. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to know like, what exactly was going through Peter's mind when he did this, when he decided to go out fishing. What we do know is that chapter 20 was a pretty dramatic experience, right? I don't know if you've ever met a man who came back from the dead, but I imagine if you met a man who came back from the dead, it would be a pretty transformative experience. And so Peter, along with his friends, had encountered the risen Jesus. Their minds were blown. Jesus had blessed them, had given him his spirit, had called them to be a part of his mission. I mean, you would think that an experience like that with the risen Jesus would completely change the course of their life almost immediately, right? So where do we find, the very next chapter, what do we find Peter and the other disciples doing? Do we find them gathering for fervent prayer? Do we find them fervently studying the scriptures? Do we find them standing in the marketplace, proclaiming the risen Jesus? No, we find them returning to this very mundane, ordinary life that they had before. We find them fishing. Now, I don't want to read too much into that because obviously even apostles need to eat and make a living. But here's my hunch. My hunch is that something else is going on here. Despite the fact that Jesus had appeared to him, Peter, with his friends, I'm guessing that Peter is still really struggling at this point with a sense of spiritual failure and spiritual shame. Um, he had, if you know the story, Peter had committed a terrible betrayal. Uh, do you remember the story? Um, just before, before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus had said to his friends, the disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, and every single one of you is going to abandon me. And do you remember how Peter responded? Not me, Lord. All these other dudes, they're going to abandon you, but not me. I love you more than the rest. I will never abandon you. I will stay with you to the very end, which, of course, is exactly what didn't happen. Peter denied Jesus, not once, but three times denying that he even knew him. Peter made the greatest act 
The greatest profession of love and loyalty and apart from Judas made and committed the greatest act of denial and betrayal. He was a coward, a fraud, a fake, and a failure, and Peter knew it in his core. And so I'm just kind of thinking that at this point, even after the risen Jesus appeared to him, Peter is just thinking to himself, okay, yeah, you know, Jesus appeared to us in the upper room. Jesus recommissioned us. Jesus, you know, told us what to do. But he wasn't talking to me. Not, not me, not, not after what I've done, not after my failures, not after what I did to him. And so Peter says to his buddies, like, look, I don't know what you guys are gonna do, but I'm just gonna go back to doing what I was doing before because that's the only thing I really know. And I don't know if you have ever been in a place of like crippling depression or overwhelming shame, but I can tell you as someone who has experienced that personally, that when you're in a place like that, you just tend to sort of go back into the old habits and the old ruts because you cannot imagine anything new or beautiful in your life anymore. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking is going on in Peter's head. And so they decide to go out fishing and they fish all night, which is the right time to fish in the ancient world. And after a whole night, they catch nothing, nothing. And again, maybe reading a little bit into Peter's mood, he's likely thinking, oh, this is just great. Not only have I completely failed as a disciple, but I've also completely failed at the one thing that I know how to do, fish, right? And so he is just, I'm guessing he is just feeling demoralized. He's looking at these empty nets and just seeing them as a metaphor for his entire life, right? And so they're just, they're coming back into shore. The sun is rising. He is at the very bottom. And they look up and there's this guy standing there in the dawn light on the shore. And either because it's still a little dark or because he's 100 yards away or just because of the mysteriousness of Jesus' resurrected body, they do not realize that it's him. And Jesus very playfully calls out, hey, friends, actually the Greek word is uh, children, lads, no luck last night. Rolling your eyes, who is this joker? No. Why don't you try throwing the net on the other side of the boat? Now I don't, there's nothing more annoying than some dude showing up at your workplace and telling you how to do your job, right? Especially with a totally absurd suggestion. But for some reason, they do it. And this is not an easy thing. I mean, these nets weigh hundreds of pounds. You know, they have weights sewn into the bottom seams. And so they haul these nets up from the water, dump them into the boat, and then shove them over onto the other side. And immediately they are so full with fish that the boat is nearly tipping. So at this point, they immediately realize, John realizes at first, it is the Lord. And so Peter, who's basically almost naked at this point, he's wearing his underwear, he just like throws on his clothes without even thinking, because that's what he does, he acts before he thinks. He jumps into the water, leaves his mates in the boat to haul up these fish themselves and starts swimming 100 yards back to shore. Now there's Jesus sitting on the shoreline, tending a fire, cooking breakfast with fish and bread that apparently he caught and made himself. And he looks up at Peter, 
And I just want, you know, I really think these stories are so evocative. They're meant for you to picture them in your mind. Maybe it even helps for you to close your eyes for a moment and just picture this scene. There's Jesus in the dawn light. He's tending a fire. He's cooking breakfast. Here's Peter, dripping wet, panting, <sighs> trying to catch his breath after just having swum a hundred yards, and he's slowly kind of stumbling up to Jesus, and his heart is racing, and his friends are about 50 yards back in the water, and they are quietly moving their way back to shore with their eyes locked on these two figures because they know just as well as Peter how royally he has failed, and they just want to see what is going to happen. What's Jesus going to say? What's he going to do? What does Jesus do with spiritual failures like Peter? What does Jesus do with spiritual failures like us? Well, here's what he does. The first thing he does is he just extends grace and welcome. You know, I just think this is so simple yet so powerful. Here is Jesus, newly resurrected from the dead. And what do we find the Lord of the universe doing? What would you guess that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, might be doing, freshly resurrected from the dead? Maybe zipping around the world with his heavenly glory or announcing to all to repent and trust in him or showing off his resurrected body. What do we find the risen Lord doing? Cooking. <laughs> Breakfast. We find him seeking out a friend who has a broken heart and making breakfast for him. That's what we find the resurrected Jesus doing. And so this is just remarkable that, you know, kids, I don't know how, just imagine this, how you would feel after being in a boat in the dark, in the night, all night long. Maybe rain has been pelting on your body. Maybe you smell bad. Maybe you're exhausted and you're tired and you've just jumped into the frigid sea and you've swum a hundred yards and you're exhausted and tired and suddenly you look up and there's Jesus and he made a fire for you and he's warming you and he's cooking for you and he's filling your belly and he's telling you to have a seat and be with him. So it is just so beautiful that the very first response that Jesus has to Peter and this bedraggled group of disciples is to extend simple, compassionate care and basic provision. And as we said, all summer, in ancient culture, to share a meal with someone, especially to cook a meal for someone, isn't just about nourishment. It is an invitation to friendship. It's an invitation to intimate relationship and communion of hearts. So here's why I've just been so moved thinking about this week, that before Peter can say a word, before he can repent, before he can apologize, before he can name his mistakes, Jesus is there first, inviting him back into relationship, saying, come and eat with me, come and be with me. You might feel that our relationship is broken, but from my perspective, it is not. You may have abandoned me, but I have never abandoned you. You are my friend. You belong to me. I love you. Come and sit. So I just want you to know, my dear sisters and brothers, that Jesus does this for you. Whatever your past, uh, whatever your deepest secret, whatever the darkness that you carry, um, no matter how far you feel from God, or no matter how long it's been since you talked to him, Jesus doesn't even wait for you 
to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't wait for you to repent. He doesn't wait for you to pull your life together. In this relationship, this one with Jesus Christ, he always makes the first move. And that is the gospel. The Bible is the story not of man's search for God, but of God's relentless search for us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It is good news that God's grace comes to us even before we ask for it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God does not give us grace because we repent and turn back to him. We can turn and come back to him because he has already given us grace. And this is what Jesus is offering to you. He comes for you. He welcomes you no matter how far away you feel or no matter what burden you bear. He is there welcoming you to his fire. So that's this first beautiful truth that we see here is that Jesus extends grace and welcome. The second thing that we see Jesus doing in this story is we see that Jesus addresses the offense. He addresses the offense. I don't know if you have, or I'm sure you have, think about a, maybe a, a relationship that you care about that you've been in, in which there has been a break, a breach, a wound, where they have hurt you or you've hurt them. You know that in a situation like that, you can't experience restoration in that relationship until the offense is named and addressed and talked about. If Jesus had just welcomed Peter back and never even mentioned his denial, then Peter would always feel like there was something in the relationship that was false or superficial or that there was like this invisible wall between them. Peter would have never felt secure. He would have always wondered what Jesus really thought about him and thought about what he did. So in order for their relationship to be fully restored, the offense needed to be named and the pain acknowledged and forgiveness granted, just like in any human relationship. And so that's exactly what Jesus does here. So again, look with me or imagine this scene in your mind. Um, they're eating breakfast. They're all just kind of looking at each other. And they're eating maybe in silence with each other, just sitting on the shore there. And suddenly Jesus looks up and he looks straight at Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, I want you to imagine, especially after there's been a wound in a relationship, imagine your spouse or a parent or a best friend or someone that you love that you have hurt. Imagine someone like that saying that to you. Do you even... Do, do you even love me? I mean, the pain that it must have shot like an arrow into Peter's heart because Jesus is essentially saying, you have given me every reason to believe that you don't. You don't love me. And not only was the question so painful, but the fact that he asked it three times to just kind of stick the knife in a little bit to match the threefold denial that Peter had committed. And so it says in verse 17 that Peter was hurt. He felt pain, right? His hurt is not so much created by Jesus's questions as exposed by it because Peter himself knows about his failures and his inability to love Jesus. And he is feeling deeply the pain of what he's done in that moment. Now, this may not appear to you at first glance to be a very loving thing for Jesus to do, but remember what we said, no relationship can be fully healed without the offense being named, acknowledged, and forgiven. So yeah, Peter, Jesus is causing some 
hurt and discomfort to Peter. But this is not the blunt, vindictive wound of an enemy. This is the compassionate incision of a loving surgeon who does not want to see his patient die of the cancer within them. He wants Peter to face up to what he's done, not to shame him, but to free him from the guilt and the debilitating shame that Peter is still living under. So yeah, he's, 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 he's asking these questions, but he's doing it in the context of this safe, caring, loving relationship around breakfast, around a warming fire. I love the way that psychiatrist Kurt Thompson describes what is happening here in a powerful way that only a psychiatrist could do. I'm gonna read this to you. I have the quote up here on the screen, but you're, you're welcome to just listen. He says this, recall that Peter's denials came while warming himself around a fire, not unlike the one Jesus has made on the beach to cook breakfast for his disciples. Charcoal smoke, flame, plenty of stimuli to evoke Peter's implicit memory networks through olfactory visual heat and auditory senses that would activate his shame matrix. Jesus is not satisfied with Peter simply confronting his acts of denial. He knows that will not be enough. Jesus takes Peter back through his memory so he can be present with Peter in his shame and in his fear in order to heal them. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's deliberately triggering his implicit memories, bringing him back to that place of the greatest shame in his life and showing him at that moment that he can indeed be exposed in the worst parts of who he is and yet at the same time be received in love. He will not be rejected. You know, I, I, I know I say this a lot at third and I'm just gonna keep saying it because I believe this to my core that two of the greatest needs of every human heart, no matter who you are, no matter whether you're religious or not, no matter whether you're Christian or not, two of the greatest, deepest human needs is to be fully known and to be fully loved. We all want that. We want to be known all the way to the bottom. And we also want to be fully received and loved as we are. But here's the problem. I think we all know deep down that if I were truly and fully known, everything in me, you would not love me. In fact, a friend told me about a t-shirt he saw in Myrtle Beach that said, if you knew what it was in my mind, you would punch me in the face, right? <laughs> and, and I think this is what all of us sort of implicitly know, that if you truly knew me, if you knew all of me, if you knew everything that was in my mind and everything that was in my heart and all of the deepest darkness within me and all of my sins and all of my neuroses and all the ways that I've hurt other people and all the ways that I have turned into in, sin instead of love, like if you knew all of that stuff around me, no, you would not love me. And so what do we do in response to that? We perform, we pretend, we deny, we evade, we rationalize, we justify, and the more you live that kind of life, the more superficial, hypocritical you will become, and the more the darkness within you will destroy you. Jesus is offering Peter and offering to us a different way. He's giving him at this moment this gift Peter looks into the eyes of Jesus and knows that Jesus sees him all the way to the bottom. He sees everything. He's exposing the worst things about himself and his past, the places of tremendous shame and failure, and yet Jesus is doing it in an environment of total safety, acceptance, and love. Here at this breakfast, perhaps for the first time in his life, Peter is fully known and fully loved. And I just want to offer that to you that 
God in Christ is offering that to you, that you can come out of hiding, that you can name uh, the darkest places of your life, the memories that haunt you. Uh, You can willingly be exposed and take responsibility for your failures. You can honestly name your darkness. You can repent. You can do it because you do it in the safety of the warmth of Jesus' fire. To be known by him and to be loved by him, this is what we need as humans more than anything else, and this is what you're offered in the gospel. And let me just say this. I just also think it's beautiful that Jesus is doing this not just with Peter privately, but he's doing it in the context of his friends because Jesus is also creating a community in which it is safe to be courageously vulnerable and to share the darkest things about yourself so that there is a community that is able to accept and receive one another and pronounce grace over one another's sins. And this is the kind of courageously vulnerable community that God is calling us to build here at Third. This is what we need as humans. This is alone, to be fully known and fully loved that liberates us from pretense, that frees us from shame, and strengthens us for any difficulty that comes. So what we see Jesus doing, he's extending grace, he's addressing the offense, and the last thing Jesus does is he commissions Peter into the work. After college, um, I worked for a home builder framing houses for a season, and I was very bad at it. Um, And I made many mistakes. And the more mistakes I made, the more responsibility my boss took away from me. So by the end of my season of working for him, at one point he had me, literally, I showed up for work, he told me to sit on the end of a catwalk while another man worked on the other side, serving as a human 180-pound counterweight sandbag. (laughs) This, he thought, was the one thing I could do well, sit there. (laughs) And so this is how... um, This is how the world works, right? Like, the more you fail, the less responsibility you have, and the more you succeed, the more responsibility you get. Well, that's the way the world works. Apparently, that is not the way Jesus Christ works. Because three times Jesus asked Peter this exposing question, do you love me? And three times afterwards, he gives Peter a new commission, feed my sheep. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes again, okay? I believe that Peter is not only struggling with overwhelming guilt, but he's also struggling with overwhelming worthlessness, a feeling of worthlessness because he's failed in his greatest calling in life. And so what's so beautiful about what Jesus is doing here is that he is not only addressing his feelings of guilt by offering him grace, but he's also addressing his feelings of worthlessness by calling him into a new and beautiful work, saying, I need you, I want you, I'm calling you to be a part of the work, my work in the world. I mean, Jesus could have just said to him privately, hey, you know that three times you denied me? Hey, don't worry about it, man, we're cool. But Peter would have been left directionless, confused, unclear about what he should do with his life. Now, instead, not only Jesus forgives him, he commissions him, he reinstates him as a leader of the apostles, and he does it in front of his peers so that they too can see the restoration taking place. So with this threefold commission, his denial is wiped clean, and not only that, his sense of value and agency is restored by his Lord. Jesus is not just giving Peter a second chance. He's reframing his identity. He's saying, look, Peter, don't define yourself anymore by your failures, your mistakes, your sin. That is not who you are. Here is who you are. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are called. Stop defining yourself by those old things. Now define yourself by what I am saying to you right now. 
This is who you are. Claim this. Listen to me. He gives him a new identity that will shape him for the rest of his life. And what qualifies Peter for this, y'all? Is it his exceptional performance and good report card? No. What qualifies him is the mercy of Jesus. I love what Leslie Newbigin says. He said, if Peter has any primacy among the apostles, it is because he has primacy as a forgiven sinner. (laughs) The biggest one. Jesus uses the most messed up people for his greatest work. So listen, brothers and sisters, what does Jesus do with our failures? Not only does he welcome us, not only does he create a safe space for us to be known and loved, but then he commissions us to be a part of his work. And let's be clear, Jesus doesn't need us to do his work. I love the fact that, you know, they haul this fish up to shore and Jesus says, hey, why don't you bring some of your fish that we can have for breakfast? But Jesus doesn't need it. He already caught some fish. And it's just this like subtle way of saying, Jesus doesn't need your fish. Jesus doesn't need your work. He is fully capable as the risen son of God to catch his own fish and to do his own work without us. And yet he joyfully delights in sharing, welcoming his brothers and sisters into his work that they might participate and be given value that we don't have to, you know, experience, that we wouldn't experience the the nobility and agency of being a, a useless human sandbag but that we would be called by him because we have something to contribute to him and his work in the kingdom. What is this work that Jesus invites us into? Well, that would be a whole other sermon, but I just want to point out simply here that the work that Jesus calls us to is just, please feed my sheep. The people that God has entrusted to you, your kids, your employees, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your church, your work colleagues, the people in your parish or parish group, people in your life who need to know the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus is saying to you, these people in your life, they're mine. I'm entrusting them to you. Feed them. Care for them. Nourish them. Speak my word of grace and truth to them. Bind up their wounds. Care for their hearts. Point them to my love. This is how you share in my work. Many of us long to do great things for God. And yet many of us also feel that we're too old, we're too young, we're too tired, or we have too many kids, you know, where, you know, you're caring so much for someone in your life that you don't have any time to do God's work, right? Or you're not gifted enough, you're not available enough, you're not smart enough, you're not holy enough. But Jesus shows us right here that one of the greatest callings of our lives is to simply look up See the people around us, the little people, the big people, the annoying people, the smart people, the dumb people, all the people. See the people around us. And Jesus says, these are mine. I'm giving them to you. To nurture, care, and love in a way that I would do through you. And this is not always easy. Sheep are not cute and fluffy like on greeting cards. Sheep smell. Sheep bite. Sheep have ticks and fleas. Sheep make messes. Shepherds are called to love and care for creatures who are very difficult to love. And when you have trouble with that, remember that you're a sheep too. And that the great shepherd laid down his life for you, that you would be forgiven and free. So who are those people for you? When you hear Jesus say to you, feed my sheep, who are the first three people that pop into your mind? That's the Holy Spirit calling you into one of the greatest work for your life. So let me close. The jury is still out on whether breakfast is the most important meal of the day. 
But for Peter, at least, this breakfast will be the most important meal of his life forever. And it's pretty important for us, too, because it shows us, it shows us what God does with spiritual failures, what God does with people who are far from him, with people who struggle, with people who are burdened with shame. He welcomes us. He gently names our failures. He gives us a safe place to be known and forgiven. And he commissions us into a new life of meaning. So I would just invite you this week to take a few moments of silence to sit with Jesus. Imagine him there at the fire. Imagine you walking up to him, stumbling on the shoreline. Imagine him looking up and seeing you and his face breaks out in a smile and he says, come and sit with me. And what does Jesus say to you? What do you need him to say to you? Do you just need to be reminded that you are unequivocally welcomed and you've stopped believing that? Do you need him to heal some very, very painful memory or some terrible darkness that you need to be named and forgiven? Or are you feeling useless and you need to be reminded that you get to be a part of eternally meaningful work. So what does Jesus want to say to you at the fire? Let's pray. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so kind, that you cook food for your friends, that you invite us to sit with you, you create a safe place where our deepest, darkest sins can be named and forgiven, and that you call us into your great work. Help us to respond to your voice and to listen and receive. In Jesus' name, amen.